Good evening. So um, we come to the final uh, part of the Bible overview that we've been uh, embarking on these last few weeks. And uh, we're going to, to try and finish it off uh, and going to be looking at uh, Ephesians through to the end of the New Testament. Uh, again, if uh, you feel your fingers not up to it on your phone, um, there are plenty of Bibles at the back uh, that you can help yourself to uh, because we will obviously be having a number of references. Now, uh, of course, it's an overview and... Uh, that means it's a big picture thing. I confess to have having uh, a degree of frustration over these last few weeks uh, because you're not really able to land on one thing substantially and perhaps you've uh, shared that frustration uh, as we've gone through it. But what, what really impressed itself upon me in looking at this particular part of our New Testament is the emphasis that there is on, on persecution. Uh, and on suffering and that's not just because we had that that video to remind us about the suffering church uh, today um, what we're going to start off in looking at are uh, what are known as the prison letters letters that are written from prison and uh, we find that this is a major emphasis all the way through even to the book of revelation of course uh, where john is exiled on the island of Patmos, imprisoned on an island, and, and that is the background even to the final book. So none of us knows what lies before us as far as this coming year is concerned. We, we step forward uh, into, into the unknown with our hand in the hand of God. And uh, if there are difficulties ahead of us, as there undoubtedly are for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the reassurance of knowing that the Scripture has an awful lot to say about suffering. Um, in fact, many people would say that in the West, we, we probably need to recapture again a, a proper biblical theology of suffering. And certainly that is what we have when we come to, to these prison letters. So let's just turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, uh, really just to, to make um, that point. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond uh, of peace. Uh, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison. Uh, probably just house arrest. He had a degree of freedom. Uh, but it was during this period of time that he wrote four uh, of the New Testament letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And I'm going to kind of try and group these together with this idea uh, of suffering coming out of it. So he's a prisoner, as it says here, but he's a, he's a prisoner for the Lord. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, when uh, the commission was given to the apostles, it was that they were to be witnesses for Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, the word witness in its Greek form uh, carries with it the sense of martyr, you know, that people who would witness by giving their lives for the cause of Christ. And sometimes I think we've kind of lost sight about that a little bit, but certainly the early church 
did not lose sight of that at all. And Paul would give his life for the sake of the gospel, as would Peter and, and possibly John as well. And, um, you know, maybe for most of us, as we look to the future and we think about getting older, you know, maybe, maybe we think that we're all going to end up in a, an old folks' home somewhere and dementia is what lies ahead of us. But uh, I wonder really if the cause of Christ is so important and we feel that we should be so radical that there is the possibility in our minds that we truly could be martyrs for Christ. And it is so important for us that we would prepare to take risks and lay down our life for the gospel. Did not the Lord Jesus say that whoever wants to be my disciple needs to take up his cross and follow me in the way that he went? So let's just have that as the main kind of background as we look at some of these uh, epistles. Now, uh, in Ephesians, chapter 4 is the kind of watershed of the, of the book, actually, because what, what Paul is trying to do in this great chapter um, is he's trying to make the point to them that uh, they are a new community. They are the body of Christ. That uh, things that used to divide and things that used to categorize people have actually now uh, all been done away with. Um, He talks, for instance, in chapter 2 and verse 11 about the fact that the Gentiles among them who were, you know, far away, foreigners, aliens to the things of God. They have now been brought near. And it says in in chapter 2, verse 14, that the division, the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles in Christ has now been uh, broken down and one new man has now been formed. And this new man is the church of God. It's It's the body of Christ. And they have to understand who they are. And in these first uh, few chapters, the first half of Ephesians, he's really making them understand who they are in Christ and what their blessings are in Christ. So in chapter 1, in verse uh, number 3, he says, He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes down to, to number a whole list of these blessings. And the point he's making is, and he takes it to himself, is, you know, I'm here in prison in Rome. But there is a sense in which I'm not here in a prison in Rome. I, along with all the church, I am in the heavenly realms in Christ. My, uh, my position in Christ is beyond my physical situation on earth. And I am blessed as much as it's possible to be blessed by what Christ has done. And in this first half of the book, he's laying down the doctrinal basis of our beliefs and the foundations of what we have. And then in chapter 4, he begins to translate that into because of all of this, here is how we should now live. On the back of all of this, then this is how we should live. And just to pick up on one of the points... Uh, because it's relevant to this kind of theme that's in my mind. Uh, in chapter 6, there is the, uh, the famous section on the armor of God at uh, verse 10. And you can almost understand why he puts that down. He's, he's chained to a Roman guard at the time. 
and uh, almost as he's going down the various parts of the of the of the uniform he's he's kind of looking up and down the soldier that's next to him and he's he's talking about the helmet and he's talking about the breastplate and he's talking about the sword and so forth but the point he's really getting is that we need to arm ourselves in our minds we need to defend ourselves against the attacks of an evil dark power that assails us and having done all of that what he says is that you might stand you see that down in verse number 13 and after you have done everything to stand stand firm then so that's what he wants these people to do in their understanding of who they are as the body of Christ this new community lacking divisions the old order stand firm so that's the that's the the message to us today do we really grasp who we are and the blessings we have that we're actually raised to the heavenly realms and in understanding that with all the things that are against us in life the things that are anti-christ and anti-christian for us to to really stand firm this week you know not to be a spiritual jellyfish but to have a bit of backbone and to really stand firm and stand up for Christ and the doctrines of, of the gospel. Now when we come into Philippians, we, we, we find of course that he's, he's in prison and he, and he makes that point clear in chapter 1 and verse number 7 where he says, I am in chains for the gospel. Uh, if you look down at verse number 13, I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously uh, and, and fearlessly. Of course, Paul, when he had visited Philippi back in Acts 16, had been put in prison. Uh, you remember his feet in the stocks, Paul and Silas sang praises to God and the, and the prisoners heard them. Uh, and it's almost as if there's a bit of a continuation of that thought because it's about singing and giving praise to God in, 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 in Philippians. Despite his circumstances, he has this mindset of being determined that he would live above them and that he would be characterized by joy. And, and joy and rejoicing um, is mentioned uh, virtually in every chapter of, of, uh, of Philippians. And that's one of the great secrets of life, of course, isn't it? That our circumstances may be tough. Paul, Paul's circumstances were, were compounded, actually. It wasn't just the fact that he was in prison. But if you read down uh, chapter 1, uh, you find, uh, you know, at verse 17, um, that there were people who made his situation even more difficult for him. They were trying to add to his problems. And they were, they were preaching Christ, but they were playing games. And there was politics in all of this. And they hoped by doing that, they would somehow or another add to his problems. And you think, well, why would people do that kind of thing? Would Christians behave like that? And of course, we all know that sometimes, you know, funny things go on among churches and the people of God that can blow you out of the water if you're not careful sometimes. And Paul, despite all of this, you know, makes up his mind that he will rejoice in the Lord. 
Now let me just point you into uh, some of the, the ways in which he says this. Uh, chapter 4 uh, and verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Now I think the point that he's making is you have to commit yourself almost to having this attitude of heart. And we shouldn't confuse joy, of course, with happiness. Different things altogether. You've heard me say this before. Happiness has to do with happenings. It has to do with things that happen to you. And you respond to these things. They make you happy or they don't. Joy is different. It's independent of happenings. It's a deeper thing. It's something that's independent of all of that. And we can rejoice irrespective of our circumstances but we have to we have to commit to that and we have to focus on the reasons that we have something that's more deep-seated and deep-rooted and remind ourselves about our blessings in the Lord Jesus and that's always a lesson for all of us isn't it at times when life uh, becomes difficult for us now um One of the great uh, verses, of course, in Philippians is uh, chapter 1 and verse 21, where he says, as he is looking at the real possibility that, you know, this is the end of the road for him, um, he says, for me to live is Christ uh, and to die is gain. He looks to the future and the the future is bright for him. Um, He looks beyond just what's round about him. And uh, he says that uh, being with Christ is, is better by far. And he looks with anticipation um, to that. And it's good for us uh, to remember that uh, all that goes round about us as far as our daily life is not the end of things. We need to again focus on the great eternal realities that the Word of God highlights And that although living now should be Christ, that if I die, then there is no doubt about it. That will be gain. That will be a plus. It will not be uh, a negative. And so he he gives his joy from from the jail and his, uh, his message about living above our circumstances uh, with, with joy. Now, in coming to Colossians, um, uh, we find with a comparison to Ephesians that it almost seems a parallel book. And it seems as though there are a lot of, uh, of similarities uh, that, that, that are there. But um, I suppose it's best described as uh, the other side of the coin to Ephesians. Because if you look at it closely... Ephesians, as I said, is dealing with, with the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Whereas on the other hand, Colossians more emphasizes Christ as the head of the body. And so we had that reading at the start from Colossians chapter 1, from verse 15. That great passage that talks about him as the image of the invisible God. And it talks about that in everything... Christ might have the supremacy, that he might have the preeminence. And it's the greatness of the head of the church that is being emphasized uh, to the Colossians. 
And uh, you can see the, the reason for that, because part of the problem that the Colossians had to deal with was a, a, an unhelpful and an inaccurate emphasis on, on religion. On religion. Religion without Christ. And so, for instance, um, what he has to say uh, in chapter 2, verse 8, is that, See that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. It's possible to have a whole philosophy and approach that in fact is not depending on Christ. It's not connected to the, the great head of the church at all. It's based on human tradition. Now he gives another insight into this. If you go down to verse 21 of chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 20 says, uh, talks about uh, the basic principles of this world. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he says in verse 23, such regulations, they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It all sounds so good and so acceptable, but there is not the energy, there is not the, the power that comes from living union with Christ, the head of the church, the risen head of the church. And all it is is empty religion and it's formality. And, and I guess we have to guard against that at times. Very easy, isn't it, to put on a show, to say the right words, to give the appearance, to have the form of things, but not to have the real connection with Christ. And, that, and that's the point, really, that he is trying to get across about the great head of the church. There's one other point I'd like to make about the suffering side of things um, from chapter 1 and verse 24, where he says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And he's talking about his own suffering, you know, to help the church in Colossae. And then he says, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. That seems rather a strange phrase. There's something lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. You know, we're used to hearing the phrase, the finished work of Christ. That there's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Well, that is true as far as his atoning sufferings are concerned. It was completely sufficient, his suffering upon the cross. But this is talking about something different. It's suffering for the sake of Christ. The world can't get at Christ now. He's in heaven. But it can get at his people. And if, if they persecute his people, they are persecuting Christ himself. And so there is a sense, and Paul recognized this, and I, and I guess he was lifting the, the kind of whole understanding of the church to, to what their sufferings were. If I understand my sufferings basically to be the sufferings of Christ, then that gives me a completely different insight into it. And it perhaps at some level helps me cope with it and deal with it better if I realize that in, in that sense, this is the sufferings of Christ himself. 
that I am having to experience. And so that is a, that's a helpful insight uh, that Paul gives to us and something that might be worth us uh, thinking about as we feel our own sufferings as Christians uh, at times. So the final of the, the prison letters uh, is uh, Philemon. Now you will remember if you were here that we, we, we have previously dealt with the letters to Thessalonians, so I'm not going to say anything about them. Uh, but uh, Philemon is a very short book. And as you can see um, from uh, verse 10, where he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So just to make the point, it's, it's one of his prison letters. So while Paul was in prison in Rome, um, this, this man Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, Philemon had been his master. And uh, he meets Paul. And, uh, and he's converted. And he becomes his son uh, in, the, in the faith. And there's an interesting play in, in words. Uh, the word um, Onesimus, the name Onesimus, means useful. And if you look, for instance, down at verse 11, he, he says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful. That's the meaning of his name. Both to you uh, and to me. Now, the great thing for me about the book of, of Philemon is this, that uh, emphasizes the point that the gospel is not just wallpaper. You know, it's not just theory. You know, here, here's a man who had run away, who had probably stolen from his master. He'd, he'd moved away to Rome. He is converted. He wants to make restitution. And there's reconciliation that's going to take place between two men at different edges of the, the social stratosphere, you know, and yet they're going to be reconciled in Christ. And it's a real thing. It will really happen. And he's not trying to dismantle or change even the whole thing about slavery, but he's going even deeper than this. He's talking about the hearts of people that can meet as one in Christ, and there can be reconciliation. And so we have this great real event that demonstrates the power of the gospel and what happened in the lives of this triangle of Paul and Onesimus and, and Philemon who he sends him, him back to. Relationships can be restored in Christ. Well, that's a challenge to us, isn't it? Is there a relationship that I need to mend? Is there something that's gone on and it's been difficult and awkward and maybe even fractured? You know, the gospel is not wallpaper. You know, it makes real differences in people's lives and in their relationships. And like them, we need to address that. And maybe that's a challenge uh, for us. So there we have the prison letters. Now let, let's move on to what is called, uh, what are called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. And by that I mean First and Second Timothy and, and Titus. Now, just to give you a wee bit of historical background, uh, Paul was actually released from prison. Uh, Acts 28, he was released for a short period of time. And uh, during that period of time, he wrote First Timothy and he wrote Titus. He was then imprisoned again and he wrote Second Timothy, which was his very last letter just before his martyrdom. 
And so he writes to, to, first, uh, to Timothy and Titus in a pastoral way. Young men who are part of his team, who have been given a particular task. If you read in First Timothy, um, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. So he has, he has Timothy there in Ephesus, and what he's doing is he's giving him a solemn charge. He's very, he's very solemn with, with what he, he has to say to him. You know, and the importance of the work that he has to do for God in the city of Ephesus with the, with the church there. And we're going to look at some of these um, charges uh, that he gives to him. So, for instance, chapter 1 and at verse uh, number 18, he says, Timothy, my son, another one of his spiritual children, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith, and a good conscience. So he really is saying, Timothy, this, this is important. Another example of that is chapter 4 and at verse number 15, where he says to Timothy, you need, you need to be diligent in these matters. Give yourself completely to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then finally, chapter 6, verse 13, where he says this to Timothy. He starts at verse 11. We'll read a selected part. He says, you man of God, man of God. And then verse 13, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you, keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of the Lord Jesus. You know, sometimes we maybe lose grasp of, of the big picture, of just, just the significance of our service for the Lord. You know, Paul certainly didn't do that. He, he, he's not just laying it on thick for Timothy. He's actually realistic in saying, you have a great task to perform, man of God. Give yourself to this. You know, this is the charge that I give to you as you work for God in Ephesus. And, and, and I think at times, you know, we, we need to get the import of the, the significance of the task that we're part of. Whatever aspect we're called to be in, it's the work of the gospel. And it's the work of Christ, and we need to take it seriously. Now, the kind of things that he's, he's asked to do, if you, if you look through First Timothy, and then you have the, the finger in the page in Titus as well, uh, there, there is similarity. Titus is in Crete rather than in Ephesus. He's got it pretty difficult there as well. The, naturally speaking, Titus 1.12, the, the Cretans are, he says, always liars, evil brutes. You know, lazy gluttons. So, you know, he's got a pretty difficult task. But what, what they're having to do is mainly establish churches. And so you've got the emphasis on chapter 3 of First Timothy, chapter 1 of Titus, about the appointment of elders and the appointment of deacons, leadership within the church. Because he says in First Timothy 3, um, 
and verse 14. You know, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm, I'm giving you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's house. It's the, it's the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. You know, and, and, and there's the need for godly leadership, godly example, godly care. And here are the qualifications and standards for the, for the men that you should appoint to these roles. And he gives them there, both in First Timothy uh, and uh, in Titus. And, um, you know, uh, the church is important. And we ought to remember that we need to conduct ourselves properly uh, within it. Now, in coming to Second Timothy, as I said, this is the last uh, of Paul's letters. Um, chapter 4, uh, verse number 6, he makes that point. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've, I've kept the faith. And really what he's doing in this last letter is he's passing on the baton to Timothy. He's looking to the next generation coming forward. And so, for instance... Um, in chapter 2, uh, what he's saying to him is this whole concept of legacy and passing things on has to, has to keep on going. And he says, you, my son, the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust to reliable men who also will be qualified to teach others also. And Paul is an example of this himself as he's passing on so much here uh, to Timothy, his, his spiritual son. And uh, you can see some of the kind of uh, very personal touches um, when you get to uh, chapter 4, verse, verse 9. You know, do your best to come to me quickly. You know, all these people have, have abandoned him and, and uh, they've left him and uh, only Luke is, is with me. And he's saying, you know, winter is coming, you know, and, and, and come, come before winter and, and bring the scrolls and remember my cloak because it's going to be cold. And, uh, you know, and, and the old man is, is soon to be executed. Uh, and yet he's passing it on. And it's, it's, it's been passed on to us. And here's our moment, you know, to serve Christ in our generation, but to remember the legacy of passing it on uh, to others. So just as we're, we're closing, let me move from Paul uh, to the unknown writer uh, to the book of Hebrews. Now, uh, the book of Hebrews is a very rich uh, book, and uh, we did this in detail a year or two ago. Uh, let me just make a couple of points, particularly uh, about this idea of, of suffering from their point of view as well. Chapter 10, verse 32. Uh, and he says, he says to the, the, the Hebrew Christians who are, who are coming under intense pressure to, to turn back and to renounce the gospel and to go back to their old religion of Judaism. That's, that's the pressure that these people are under. And this is what he says. Remember those earlier days. Remember the earlier days. When after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution 
And at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourself had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So it comes to us. Remember remember how it was. Some, sometimes we can let things slip. Sometimes we can drift. We can allow influences to erode certain things in our minds. And uh, we can come to a point where, where we find that we have moved. Like these people had. They were on the brink of, of almost throwing things in. Remember, he says, what you used to be like. And, and you, need to, you need to hold fast and not throw these things away and to learn to persevere. One of the great points of Christian living is perseverance. And it's the point that he's made here. You know, the just will live by faith. And he leads on to chapter 11 and all the great examples of that. And the superiority of Christ is highlighted in Hebrews. How can you go back? Look at all you have in Christ. So much greater than all the things of the old way of the Jewish religion. Uh, the interesting thing about James and uh, actually about Jude as well is that they're mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, you would read about them in Mark chapter 6 verse 3. Um, they are both the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus brought up in the same family. They have a book each in our New Testament. They didn't believe in him, of course. In fact, initially, at one point, they thought he was out of his mind. But now they come to, to be believers in the Lord Jesus, and they have these, these two books here. Um, look at what he says about suffering in chapter 1, verse 2 of James. He says, Consider it pure joy. <laughs> Consider it pure joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. These people, verse number one, had been scattered because of persecution. Now James is very straightforward. And he's very practical. You know, and uh, he's concerned about real living. Uh, and uh, his watchword is chapter 2, verse 20. Faith without works or faith without deeds is useless. It says dead. There's no point in you saying what you believe if your life doesn't match up with it. It's empty, completely empty. It doesn't mean a thing what you say. He's after real religion. He's after practical, true living. And so, for instance, you've got chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by this world. You know, and so the great challenge comes to us in James. You know, you, you feel as though you're, you're in the, the firing line when you, when you read James. He talks about the use of the tongue, you know. And how, how often we fall down with that. And he says we, we, we need the real thing here. It's not just some sham belief in Christ. Because faith 
that doesn't translate into deeds in my life is, is, is a waste of time. It's not the real thing at all. You haven't got it. When we come into uh, Peter, um, Peter, of course, is one of the, the main characters in our New Testament. Um, and uh, we all have a great deal of affinity with him. Uh, again, Peter is writing to people who have been scattered. Chapter 1, verse 1. And he talks in chapter 1 uh, about uh, how all these trials, verse 6 and verse 7, they've come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise when Jesus Christ is revealed. And suffering is mentioned in every single chapter of First Peter, every single chapter. And one of the great points that he makes from chapter 2, verse 21, is of the Lord Jesus Christ as our example in suffering. And so he says, to this you were called. He's talking about suffering. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And we look at the steps of Christ. And we're to follow in his steps. And the steps here, they include his response and his reaction to his suffering. So verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's the way that we need to conduct ourselves uh, in the face uh, of suffering. Second Peter and, uh, and Jude are very similar. In fact, if you uh, read Second Peter chapter 2 and you read the book of Jude, they're, they're almost identical. And they have to do with a concern with uh, false teachers and people who are corrupting and insidiously trying to warp the church. And in fact, if you read uh, Jude, uh, what he says is this. You know, in verse 3, I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. But I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Okay? And so this is the big point that really bears down upon him. Here's the faith, the body of truth, the gospel. And it's being attacked. And we need to earnestly contend for that. And in our day and age, it's still being attacked. And at times we too will need to stand up like Jude did, like Peter did, and to earnestly defend the faith, because if it's, if it's muddied and there's smoke screens put all around, then people will never grasp the important message of the gospel and will miss the way to heaven. And so it's, it's something that's important. Now, just to, I, I'm grateful for your patience, but I don't want to subject you to another night of this. So we're just going to finish it tonight. This is my last stuff. Uh, we're, we're looking at, at the writings of John. Okay? Uh, three letters. And then, of course, the Revelation, the final book in the Bible. Now, a um, couple of things about, about John. Uh, from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. You'll see this is repeated. 
He often says, my dear children. See that, my dear children, I write this to you. And this is his whole point. He's he's writing to those who are part of the family of God. And, and, And what he describes throughout this book are family features. The characteristics of those who are the children of God. And so you will come across again another phrase, so chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And he again does this frequently. We know this. This is how we know. You know? And, and we, can, we can apply certain tests to some people. And if they pass the tests, then we know that they are the children of God. If they don't pass these tests then they're not the children of God. No matter what their protestations are, they're not the children of God. So he talks about fundamentally obedience to the words of the word of Christ. Obedience. And you can trace this all the way through. These are the tests of faith as far as those who are the children of God. And then, you know, his second and third letters are, are written to individuals. Um, Second John is to an unnamed lady and her children. Third John is to a man who was his friend whose name was called Gaius or Gaius. And uh, he's, he's con- concerned again uh, with the truth. If you look at Second John verse 2, the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. And then he says in Third John, for instance, uh, verse 4, He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He says, we have the truth, Christ. And and this is the greatest joy, that our children are walking in it. Now, he had a pretty hard time in 3 John. There's a chap there who's mentioned at verse 9, whose name is called Diotrephes. Here's John, the apostle of Christ, and he's actually kicked out of the church by Diotrephus, somebody who, who always loved to, to have the uh, uh, preeminence, the first place, top dog. He had to be the main man all the time. And he even kicks John out of the church. And so sometimes things have to be said to, again, cope with these difficulties uh, in church life. And then finally, John is exiled, Rev- Revelation. Uh, and here is the great conclusion uh, of the Bible. We, we said that recently when we went through Revelation. It's not just the fact that it's the last book of the Bible. It's the grand conclusion that everything else builds up to and it rounds it all off. But suffering is a part of that as well. Let me just point out one verse that, that makes that point from chapter 6 uh, and verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? How long? And they were told that um, they had to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been were, were completed. And there are some terrible judgments and, and tribulations that are described in this book until finally, verse uh, chapter 19, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords rides out of heaven. And then verse uh, chapter 21, the new heaven uh, and the new earth is described. The holy city coming down out of heaven 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. And the great finality of God's eternal kingdom, when his people are, are safe home and he has held them fast in the face of all the suffering and persecution and their safe home. And so our eyes are, are turned heavenwards and upwards as we reach this final passage of this glorious unified book that we have come to love uh, and trust in. The rest, you know, the, the doctrine of the sufficiency and the inspiration of Scripture is the bedrock of what we, we believe. If we don't believe in the sufficiency and inspiration of Scripture, then everything else falls down, actually. And so we've, we've given this overview. I trust that it's been of some help and uh, not too frustrating for you as we've whizzed through things and that we come to love uh, and to obey uh, the Word of God. Now, shall we pray? Lord, we again take time just to think about our brothers and sisters suffering and persecuted in different parts of the world. We are one with them as part of the, the, the body of Christ, united in, uh, spiritually to them and also to Christ in heaven. Um, Lord, we pray that the tremendous promises, eternal promises that the book of Revelation gives will, will be something that really lives with them and helps them as they, as they have to endure and give them perseverance, the great perseverance that points to the reality of faith that they have in Christ. And forgive us at times for our complacency and for our lack of understanding and of remembering them. And so, Lord, we thank you for your wonderful word. Uh, may that be something that continues to guide uh, and to dominate our lives as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.